Well, last week we kicked off a two-part series entitled Refuge, and we began to explore questions like, how important is location? How much importance should a Christian place upon location? And whether or not location is the determining factor in our happiness and success. If you are with us, you know that we spent the majority of our time really considering four basic questions. Number one, can the right location provide us with lasting happiness? Number two, can the right location set the conditions for us to prosper? Number three, can the right location help us have better and deeper relationships? And fourth and finally, can the right location guarantee our safety and security? And last week, we really did see that location can make a huge impact in our lives, both for good and for bad. But we also saw that as important as location might be, our location could never solve all of our problems or become some sort of magical cure-all. For example, we saw that although some people might make a move and build lifelong new connections with their friendships, or people might make a move and then build a tremendous amount of wealth, there are also many, many people who move great distances with the same high hopes only to experience bitter disappointments in both their relationships and their finances. Last week, we also saw that although some locations might provide us with a little more safety and security than others, there really is no Eden out there that can guarantee our safety and security. And last week, we also saw, although we might hate to admit it, no matter how beautiful or desirable or prosperous a location might be, it can never provide us with lasting happiness and contentment in life. To sum it up, last week we explored what does not work. But this week we're going to turn a corner. This week, instead of focusing on what does not meet those needs for safety and security and lasting happiness and all the rest, instead, today we are going to see what actually can meet those needs that you and I have. So here's what we're going to do for today. We're going to take those same four questions we asked last week, but instead of asking something like, can the right location guarantee our safety and security. Instead, we're going to ask the question, can God guarantee our safety and security? So let's begin today by starting with the relational question and ask ourselves, can God help us have better and deeper relationships? Well, if you were with us three weeks ago, Pastor Rex preached a message entitled, Waging Peace. And in that sermon, Pastor Rex pointed out the fact that there's a reason in the scriptures given for why there is so much relational strain and discord among friends and family and neighbors. He drew our attention to the book of James. And in the book of James, we see that a question is really raised in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. And the question is raised to explain why we have so much conflict, frustration, and fights with one another. Here's what Pastor Rex pointed out a few weeks ago. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 
What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, uh, desires rather, that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. In other words, what James is saying here is if you want to understand why we have so many fights, so much discord, so much relational strain in our lives, it's really not as important what's going on outside of us as it is what's going on inside of us, because it's what comes from our heart that brings about all this discord, disagreement, and destruction in our relationships. Pastor Rex, a few weeks ago, went on to point us to the words of Jesus, where he further explains what resides in the heart of every man and woman. What's in our natural state? What's our bent apart from God's work in our life? And he drew our attention to Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus says the following words. Again, he says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And then he gives some examples. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. You see, according to James... And according to Jesus, the reason we have so much relational static and conflict is because of what's going on inside of us. And when you begin to understand that, you'll start to see why it is so naive to think, if only I could change the scenery, if only I could get to a new location, if only I could surround myself with a brand new cast of characters, then it would iron out all of my relational problems. See, the scriptures tell us it's not so much what's out there in our environment and location that lead to breakdowns in our relationships. Rather, it's what's going on inside of our human hearts. And so if you move to a new neighborhood, if you take a new job and get new coworkers, if you move across the country, wherever you go, you're going to be surrounded with people that have the same heart condition. And so if you really are serious about wanting to build better and deeper relationships, a far better approach to simply moving would be to allow God to work in your heart. Because the reality is there are sinful, selfish people all over the world, and there's nothing we can do to change them. But the good news this morning is this. While we can't change them and force them to have better relationships with us, we can let God change us and set the conditions for us to thrive in our relationships. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we have a list that you might be familiar with. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And there the Apostle Paul really explains the characteristics and the attributes that God produces in his children as he works in their life to make them look more and more like Jesus. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22, and to the beginning of verse 23, say this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now think about 
those descriptors and ask yourself, if those were growing in my life just in an ever-increasing measure, does it seem like that would help me have better and deeper relationships? Well, to ask that question is to answer it because, of course, it's true. If I'm becoming a more gentle, humble, peaceful, kind, self-controlled person, then that is going to be catalytic in helping all of my relationships be set up for success. You see, when we cooperate with God's work in our life through the Spirit to make us more like Jesus, we become more attractive as friends, quite honestly. We become the kind of people that people will want to gravitate towards. I mean, if you had a new coworker that was full of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, and self-control, your knee-jerk reaction isn't going to be, I hate them, I want to punch them in the nose. You probably want to grab lunch with them or get to know them a little better. And when we yield to God's work in our lives, the Holy Spirit brings about that fruit and sets us up for relational success. Consider Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. This is a powerful statement that reinforces this idea. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. When a man or a woman's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Think about that. When a man or woman's lifestyle and conduct is pleasing to the Lord, it is so transformative that it can make your enemies be at peace with you. Well, how does that work exactly? Does God look down on us from heaven and say, behold, my son and my daughter, their ways are pleasing to me. I will put a spell on their enemy to make them get along better. Or does he sprinkle some magic pixie dust from heaven and that's what fixes the trouble we have with our enemies in our lives? No. Instead, what happens is as we cooperate with the Spirit's work in our life, the fruit of the Spirit is developed over time. And as God develops those characteristics in us, we learn things like how to de-escalate conflict We learn how to forgive when we suffer a wrong. We gain the wisdom to know what relationships to really invest heavily in and what relationships to maybe pull back on. And that's why if we want to have better and deeper relationships, we shouldn't be primarily focused on our location and trying to get the friendship lottery won. Instead, we should cooperate with God's work in our lives so that we can be set up for success. It's a far better and more practical way that any and all of us can do to grow in having deeper and better relationships. Second question we're gonna ask this morning is this, can God set the conditions for us to prosper? Can God set the conditions in our lives to prosper? Now, before I comment on this, let me just acknowledge Whenever you speak in public about the relationship between wealth and God, it's like walking through a minefield. There are people that go to crazy extremes in both directions, and I think if you take all of what the Bible says seriously, it's fairly nuanced and subtle, 
but you'll probably avoid some of those extremes. So let me restate the question I'm asking. I'm not asking the question, will God make all of his children rich? Instead, I'm asking the question, can God set the conditions for us to prosper? And the answer to that question is absolutely he can. God spoke in the Old Testament through the prophet Haggai to his people, and he confronted them with some sin in their lives, and he explained why their lifestyle was filled with so much frustration and disappointment. Haggai chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 9, God says this to his people. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and the little bit you did end up bringing home, I blew it away. Well, what's going on here in this passage? Well, in order to understand that, we need to understand something that happened hundreds of years earlier. God's people were enslaved in the land of Egypt. And God, through mighty signs and wonders, led them out of captivity. They wandered in the wilderness for decades, and then he eventually brought them to the promised land, the land of Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey. But right before God actually brought them into the land that he had promised them, he gave his laws, and he warned them. He said, listen, if you keep these laws and these commands and you love me above all else, you're going to be blessed and you're going to prosper. But if you love anything more than me or forsake me or my ways or my commandments, here is what you can expect. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 16 and 63, the Jewish people are about to go into the promised land. They've received the law. God says this when considering what would happen if they disobey and forsake God. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Time out for a second. What's God saying here? He's saying, you're not going to be able to outrun my hand if I set it against you. There is no location where you will be immune from these curses. You'll be cursed in the city or cursed in the field if you turn away from me. Goes on to say in that chapter, and as the Lord, as he took delight in doing good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. If the people of God that he brought into the promised land continued to just be in this lifestyle of rebellion and sin, casting off God's commands, worshiping other idols, God said, if you do that, even though I'm giving you this land, you'll be plucked off that land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now, I want to be as clear as I possibly can this morning with you, so please hear me as well as you possibly can. I do not believe through our generosity or through our giving or some piety in our life, we can manipulate God into making us rich. I'm going to say that again. I do not believe 
that we can manipulate God into making us rich. But I'll tell you what I do believe. I do believe through our sin, disobedience, and idolatry, we can invite God to strip us of whatever wealth we have. You see, God does love us, and he's a jealous God. And anytime the people of God turn their hearts to any other God besides him, he is not going to aid and abet our idolatry. Listen to the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says this, no one, that is no one in this worship center, no one online, no one in the state of New York, no one in this world, no one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, it's impossible, you cannot serve both God and money. And so if you are a child of God, and at any point in your life you begin to treasure wealth above God, do not be surprised if God strips you of whatever wealth you might have, because God never, never, never will co-sign our idolatry. Third question I want to ask today is this. Can God provide us with lasting happiness? Can God provide us with lasting happiness? You know, I have to believe all of us at one point in time or another have said on our calendar that there's some place we're going to go that we don't want to be, doing some activity that we don't want to do with people that we don't want to be around. I mean, am I the only one that's ever been in that situation? All of us, let's be honest here, at one point in time or another have said, man, I've got this commitment, don't want to go there, don't want to do the thing, don't want to be around those people. And oftentimes we go into those circumstances with a pretty lousy attitude, and it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. We end up having a poor time, sometimes because of the bad attitude we brought with us. Well, that can be pretty easy to remedy. Sometimes going in with a positive attitude can set the conditions to make you actually enjoy something that you didn't think you were going to enjoy. But what do you do when you go to a place that you want to be and you're doing an activity that you like doing with people that you want to be around and yet it is offering you no enjoyment, pleasure, or satisfaction? What do you do then? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is really, in part, addressing that sort of a question. We saw last week that there's this wealthy king in the book of Ecclesiastes who says, I'm going to make it my mission in life to seek out pleasure and fulfillment. And he does it every way you could possibly imagine. But he comes to the conclusion, after accomplishing all the things, buying all the things, acquiring all the things, getting all the accolades, at the end of the day, he was no more happy than he was before. You know, it doesn't always happen that when I'm reading through the Bible, a verse just really blows me away. Honestly, that might happen two to six times a year. A lot of the times when I'm reading through the Bible, I'm encouraged by it. I love it. I enjoy it. But it doesn't knock me out of my chair. 
But there's a couple of verses in Ecclesiastes. The first time I read them, I went, what did I just read? And I want to share them with you briefly. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 2 says this. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing that their heart desires. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. Think of that. We tend to think, if only I could accomplish what I'm setting out to accomplish, get to where I want to get, make however much money I want to make, buy whatever I want to buy. If I get that, that's the ticket to lasting happiness. This is suggesting you can have all those things, everything your heart desires, and be haunted by the fact that you get no enjoyment from it whatsoever because God is the one who enables us to enjoy it. That's stated positively in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19. Very similar. It says this, Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions, and then catch this key ingredient, and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Curious this morning, how many of you love a delicious sandwich? Show of hands, how many people here really love a good sandwich? You get excited about a good sandwich. Well, I recently came across a list that purported to be the definitive list of the 10 best sandwiches of all time. And we're gonna put them up on the screens because we're really spiritual people here. And we're going to interact with them a little bit. According to this authority, here are the 10 greatest sandwiches of all time. You ready for this? Number one, BLT. Not a huge tomato guy, so it's probably not my favorite, but I know people love a good BLT with a fresh tomato. I know that's popular. Number two, tuna melt. How in the world did tuna melt make it onto the list? Number three, grilled cheese. It's classic. It's delicious. Pretty simple. Number four, a banh mi. It's a Vietnamese sandwich. That's pretty tasty. Number five, that's polarizing, a Reuben. You got to love sauerkraut, rye. Uh, you got to love Thousand Island or Russian dressing. You got to love Swiss cheese. People tend to love or hate a Reuben. I love a good Reuben. Number six, French dip. Seven, Philly cheesesteak. Eight, Monte Cristo. Nine, lobster roll. And ten, rounding it out, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, I want to see a show of hands, and feel free to interact in the chat for those that are engaging online. How many of you do not see your favorite sandwich on that list? How many of you say, when I look at that list, they've omitted one of the best sandwiches on planet Earth? All right, that's maybe a fifth of you in the room, something like that. To me, it's pretty hard to beat a good Cuban sandwich. Any fans of Cuban sandwiches here? I'm seeing some hands go up. Cuban sandwich, it's, it's like a hot sandwich. It's kind of like a panini-style sandwich if you've never had it. It's got usually roasted pork, maybe ham, salami, Swiss, mustard, pickles. It's very crunchy and delicious. My wife uh, happens to make a delicious Cuban sandwich. And uh, Nikki does an excellent job. When she makes this, she roasts the pork herself. She makes the pickles herself. I mean, come on. 
that makes a difference. And whenever I look at the menu board and see, hey, this week we're having Cuban sandwiches, I get excited. I start drooling a little bit. I'm looking forward to whatever night we're having that meal. Well, Nikki makes these from time to time, and I absolutely love them, as you can tell. But she made one about three or four months ago, and I sat down excitedly, and I bit into it, and it really wasn't that good. It was more bland than normal, so I reached for the salt, put a lot of salt on it, took another bite. It was a little better, but it was still not that great. So then I got some mustard and kind of slathered it on the sandwich. Still very bland. And so I started doing the boneheaded husband thing of like troubleshooting the sandwich, you know, and you're like, did you use different Swiss cheese? You know, you're just asking all these stupid questions. And she's like, no, it's, I did the exact same way. Well, a few days later, I found out I had COVID. <laughs> exactly. Genius. And so since I was physically sick, I was unable to really get any pleasure or enjoyment from that sandwich. Due to my physical illness, my physical sickness, I couldn't receive any pleasure from that Cuban. Same pickles, same bread, same everything but I was physically sick, and so it brought me no enjoyment. Well, Ecclesiastes tells us that in a similar way, you can have the right pickles, the right bread, the right roasted pork. You can have everything your heart desires, but if you're spiritually sick, you might not get hardly any enjoyment out of that at all. Because according to what we just read in Ecclesiastes 5.19, the ability to enjoy what we receive is a gift that God and God alone can give. It's like Pastor Rex has said before, happiness is kind of a byproduct. The more you chase happiness, the more elusive it is. It's something that just sort of happens. And according to Ecclesiastes 6.2 and 5.19, God is the one who is able to enable us to enjoy what we have in life. And this seems to imply there might be some folks eating a hot dog in a one-bedroom apartment that are deriving more pleasure and enjoyment out of that than someone in a 7,000-square-foot home eating a filet. So can God set the conditions for us? Can God cause us to have lasting happiness and satisfaction? You bet he can. Fourth and finally, the question I want to ask today is this. Can God guarantee our safety and security. Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13 says this. God says, my sins have, excuse me, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Commenting on this passage, J.A. Thompson writes the following. J.A. Thompson says, the two grave offenses of Israel are now spelled out. On the one hand, she abandoned Yahweh, the spring of living water. And on the other hand, she had hewed out cisterns that were cracked and unable to hold water. The symbolism was clear, he writes, to the people of Judah. Every landowner in that day could wish to have a flowing spring on his property, 
which would obviate his having to dig a cistern into the limestone hills. To ensure that the cistern held water, he had to plaster it on the inside with lime plaster. He would then have to find a way to direct rainwater into it when the rain came. But such cisterns built in the limestone rock over the course of time developed cracks and the water seeped out, leaving the farmer without the precious life-giving commodity. And he finally, finally he says this, in like manner, Israel, who had available the full resources of their God, Yahweh, the spring of living water, turned aside to catch this worthless substitutes to trust themselves to powerless deities, which in the end could not meet their deep spiritual needs. You see, we all have these needs, these needs for lasting happiness, contentment, safety, and security. And we see in this passage that God's people have always had a tendency to turn away from God with unlimited resources and power this spring with flowing living water and instead to turn to these wells that we dig that crack and leak out and ultimately can do us no good. According to the scriptures, it is only God who can provide us with safety and security. In Psalm chapter four, verse eight, it says this, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'm going to read that again. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You see, the reality is, in God, we have something that is better than safety, as one person said. In God, we have the only one who is all-powerful and all-knowing and present everywhere. And therefore, if he is watching our back, you can be at the wrong place at the wrong time, and you are as safe as you can possibly be. But the reality is that kind of a statement is very countercultural, and it actually requires a tremendous amount of faith if you're actually going to live that way. Because can we just be honest today? For many of us, when we think about where our safety and security comes from, we think it comes from our location. We think it might come from a politician or a law. We think it might come from our security system or our Remington. But as important as all of those things are, if that is where our ultimate hope rests for safety and security, and we are just like God's people in the book of Jeremiah who are turning away from the only one that can help us for cheap, worthless substitutes. God warns us against doing that in the book of Psalms. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, he says, Some people trust in chariots, some people trust in horses. But as for us, God's people, our trust should be in the name of the Lord, our God. The book of Psalms 146, verses three through six, we read this. God's people, do not put your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. 
When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Grace Fellowship, no matter your neighborhood, your zip code, no matter where you are in this great big world, we have a refuge and we have something better than safety in our God. And so as we wrap up this two-week series exploring the importance of location, I simply want to briefly do two things. First, I want to give you four very quick takeaways. And then second, we're going to read a passage of Scripture and then respond in worship. So let's quickly give four takeaways from this sermon series that I hope and pray will be an encouragement to you. First takeaway today is this. There is no Eden out there. Now, I understand that might sound like bad news because we want there to be an Eden out there, some perfect place that if we could only get there, all of our problems will be solved. Let me tell you why that's actually good news to know that. There is a tremendous amount of pressure on people to believe this lie that there's some Eden out there. And a lot of folks are just totally working themselves up while trying to figure out Where's that Eden? How do I uproot my life? How do I get there? How do I navigate selling a house? How do I navigate, you know, wanting to go if my spouse doesn't want to go? And people are just worked up thinking there's some perfect place out there. Hear me today. There is no Eden out there in this world. And so take a little bit of pressure off and realize not everything is riding on that. Second takeaway is this. Location does, in fact, matter, but it is not the end-all, be-all in our lives. The fact of the matter is there are some locations that will be a better fit for you and your temperament and personality and profession, and there is nothing unspiritual about looking for those places and trying to get into those locations. Location does matter, and sometimes it can have a profound impact on shaping us and in our lives. But in the final analysis, the last word in your life need not be location. It is always, always, always God and what he decrees. Third takeaway for this little brief sermon series is this. With God's help, anyone can bloom where they're planted. That is good news. With God's help, Anyone can bloom where they are planted. You don't have to get to the perfect situation or the perfect setup. It doesn't exist. No matter where you are or how you got there, with God's help, you can bloom where you are planted. God's people bloomed in slavery in Egypt, in the wilderness, in the promised land, in captivity in Babylon. God knows how to cause us to flourish and prosper regardless of our location. Fourth and finally, in God, remember this, we have a refuge no matter our zip code or neighborhood. When you're feeling threatened, 
when you're feeling uncertain, when you're feeling scared, when you're worried, when there's some threat out there that's keeping you up at night and you're losing sleep over it, remember, we have access to the Father through the Son, no matter where we are. And because of that, we always have a place of safety and refuge. As we wrap up, I'm simply going to read a few verses from Psalm 27, and then we're going to go into a time of worship. So if you are willing, I would love to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word here, and then we will go immediately into worshiping through song. I'm going to be reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 27, the first five verses. There we read, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the refuge and fortress of my life. Whom shall I dread? When the wicked come against me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though an army encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, even in this I am confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will hide me in his shelter. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. 